The harder you work, the luckier you get. And I'm a very, very firm believer in that. And that's something I hold dear to my heart. I still make sure I sleep and I make sure I take vacations, but I work really, really hard. This is the I Make a Living podcast brought to you by FreshBooks, the number one cloud accounting solution for small business owners and their teams. I'm your host, Damona Hoffman, and I'm one of you, an entrepreneur who is also a multi-hyphenate. I know you've seen how rapidly social media has evolved in the last 10 years. If the latest Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube updates have proved anything, it's that these platforms are made to make money. Not just for the tech giants and developers, but for brands like yours and mine. Today, we're learning all about influencer marketing through the eyes of an influencer. My guest today is Julie Nolke, and just last week, YouTube named her one of Canada's top breakout creators of 2020, following a big year for her self-titled comedy YouTube channel. This is how Julie pays the bills. I make a living by being an actor, writer, and a YouTube creator. Girl, that is something that so many people aspire to. Any one of those things, there are about a million probably a billion people that are like, how can I make a living as an actor, as a writer, as a YouTuber? How did you even begin this journey? Well, it's been a long one for sure. And arduous, I would say. But um, so I'm based in Toronto, Canada, and I went to university for acting. And upon graduating university, I was like, oh, this is where I get famous. Like, I'm going to book all these jobs. People are going to want me. And this is how my life is going to start. And the arts is just not that way. It is a brutal, uh, soul-crushing industry. And I learned that very quickly. Um, I really, really struggled to book jobs in commercials, in TV, in film. And I served and bartended uh, while I auditioned. And I was starting to get really frustrated and discouraged by the industry because I knew I had something to offer. And I was also frustrated because I had all these gatekeepers telling me whether or not I was good enough to even practice my art form. Because, of course, as an actor, you don't even get to do your job unless you get hired. And and I, I that didn't sit well with me. And I wanted to be able to get better and uh, take a bit of control for myself. And so I started a YouTube channel. And it was a massive hit right out of the gate, right? <laughs> Oh gosh, if only. No, it's it was um, a bit of a, a blessing in disguise because it did really poorly for a very long time. But in that, I was able to get better. In that vacuum of having, you know, hardly anybody watching me, I was able to sharpen my skills and become a better actor and try different things, you know, and 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 nobody was really watching, but that was also okay by me because the whole point wasn't to get famous on YouTube. The whole point was to get better at acting so that maybe I could book jobs that I just wasn't booking regularly. But it took, I mean, I'm on year six. Well, maybe in the last two years is when I, when I was able to quit my Joe job. I worked as an executive assistant um, and I was able to quit that job and do arts full time. Oh, I love that. And I'm sure so many of our listeners can relate, even if they're not in the arts or in, you know, writing, acting and directing and YouTubing. But they, I'm sure, can relate to this idea of like you're doing what you have to do to pay the bills, but you have this dream and you have this side hustle that you're trying to get to a point of profitability. 
first, I just want to talk about the monetization. I'll tell you a thing about my own family. My stepsister, a couple years ago, she graduated high school and I said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And she said, a YouTuber. And I was like, no, really, what do you want to be? Like, how are you going to make some money? And she was like, well, I'm going to do my YouTube videos and Mm -hmm. I'm going to make it. And I was like, that does not sound like a plan. (laughs) (laughs) She is not YouTube famous yet. She's not making a living that way Mm -hmm. yet. But, you know, I think that the the strategy and the planning component is certainly an element. And I think you also have to think of it in a way as a business to be able to make it something profitable. Absolutely. Tell me about your journey as a YouTube entrepreneur and bringing it to that place. Yeah. So, I mean, people who don't quite understand YouTube or making online content, it can be a bit of a stretch to imagine it being lucrative, that it can be a business that you can build, but it absolutely is. And there's not one path to success. There's not one path to it paying all of your bills. And I think that's what's really exciting. And that's what makes me encouraged when I hear that people want to be in the online space because I actually do find it can be a very secure form of income. I think the biggest thing that you have to acknowledge when you do make online content is that your income has to be super diversified. And I learned that really early because, of course, I was bartending and then I eventually got that office job. And all the while I'm making YouTube. And so you're starting to roll in some AdSense money. And that's just the, you know, the very, very small percentage of the ad that plays before your video. So you get a small percentage of that income every month. With the AdSense money, you have no control over who's advertising in front of your videos. It's just like they deliver it to the audience. Yeah. I mean, you can select, you know, so I don't make kid-friendly content, particularly. Uh, You will never find like kids' toys ads on my videos. You can select, you know, uh, maybe companies that you'd rather not work with. But for the most part, yeah, you're right. It's it's pretty random what appears before your video. But yeah, so as you start to kind of watch those dollars roll in, there's a, you know, a bit of a light that goes off and you go, oh, wow, I could just, with just a few more views, you know, I might be able to go out for a nice dinner or... (laughs) Yeah, I could I could maybe start to factor that into my rent. But the problem with AdSense is that it's very, very volatile. So that's why I go back to you need to be incredibly diversified in your income streams because you can't really rely on one or the other. So for me, when I didn't have a large YouTube channel, but I wanted to still work on YouTube consistently, I had the AdSense, but then I also had a column that was merchandise. So I had a small audience, but they were devout and they wanted to wear sweaters and t-shirts. And so I was able to produce that and earn a little bit of money that way. I was also acting at the time and I was able to book jobs. And then I also was creating and producing original content for other companies. So I had a skill set that was to make really, really fast, efficient content. And I was making it for myself, but it wasn't necessarily paying off. But I could make it for other people who already had large channels and who needed content. So for me, I made a lot of content for a company called Tastemade. And they are a food and travel production company out of Los Angeles. And they were wonderful to me. I made a lot of stand and stir cooking recipes. I did a lot of travel videos for them. I worked as a host. But I would also, of course, write these videos and I would edit them. And, you know, I was able to use my really refined skill set and apply it to something else. So I think... What I'm trying to get across more than anything is that you're going to develop a skill set in being a creator, 
Those videos might not be what keep your lights on, but the skills that you learn and the kind of like scrappiness that you develop, that's going to eventually be what, you know, finds you those other jobs and ends up paying your bills. Mm -hmm. Totally applicable. I like this idea of diversifying your revenue streams, but also diversifying even how you define what it is that you do. And I certainly relate to this as an entrepreneur myself. Like I have a dating coaching business, but I also host this podcast, but I also make content for other companies. And so then when people ask me, well, what do you do? Sometimes the answer changes, right? Depending on who you are talking to. Yeah. Or depending on how much you feel like explaining. <laughs> I mean, my, my go-to, if somebody really asks, I just go, I'm an actor because the minute you get into, I'm an actor. Well, actually I, I make YouTube videos and I'm, a, and I write, then you start going down the rabbit hole of, Oh, how do you make money on YouTube? And then it's a half hour conversation that maybe I didn't plan for. So yeah, it can be certainly complicated. Well, you're here with me for half an hour. So I'm going to ask all of those questions. <laughs> Because I know our listeners want to know. But you've also had the good fortune of having videos that go viral. I don't know if there's a particular mm -hmm. threshold that makes it like, this is viral, this is not. But all of your videos get a ton of views. But during the pandemic, you really hit it with a few of your videos that got into the, the millions yeah. and millions of viewers. And people are always like, how do you do that? How do you make a video go viral? There isn't a magic recipe, is there? But if there is, tell me what it is. <laughs> well, you wait for a global pandemic. Okay. And um, <laughs> you make a video where you're just talking to yourself. No, I have no idea. I I mean, like I said, I've been on YouTube for six years. This is my sixth year, and it's only just happened for me. I had the video went viral in March or April uh, at the beginning of this year, and that's when my channel really started to take off. Now, granted, before that, I was already working full-time as an artist, you know, doing all of those different things. So I was already, like, pretty happy with, with what was going on. It, it was a really surreal experience to watch, and I, I don't know what the formula is. I think it's just a matter of I captured the, the emotional climate that we all felt on a global scale, which is you can't replicate again, I don't think, because there was something really special to all being on the same page and trying to digest, you know, this unprecedented scenario together. There's a really good lesson in there, though, about tapping into the emotional climate of your audience, for our audience, of your customers, mm -hmm. but really being able to have them look at your product or your content as something they can relate to. That's really, really important. Something that I think a lot of people gloss over. And probably, I mean, I come from corporate media and, you know, I know a lot of actors that have started YouTube channels that have not gotten to the level that you've been at, but they are thinking more about what do I want to put out into the world uh, rather than what do people need right now? Yeah, th that's a... That's kind of the constant turmoil of the artist because there's always going to be a part of you that's like, ah, I want to make something that's really good for me. You know, this is what I feel like doing. And um, your art that you make, whatever you make, it's not for you. You know, it's for other people. And while I, I don't make my videos for views, I certainly make them 
to be able to reach people and to touch people. And, and for, you know, these pandemic videos, I wanted to make something that not only captured how I was feeling, but hopefully captured what other people were feeling. Because if you remember at the beginning of this year, it, there was a lot of unknown, a lot of frustration, a lot of fear. People were losing jobs. Schools were closing. Borders were closing. And there wasn't humor, or not as far as I could tell. And any humor there was that didn't address the pandemic felt really tone deaf. So I knew that for me and my audience at the time, I wanted to make something that gave us permission to laugh at what was happening in a way that was sensitive to the issues and, and reverent of the suffering, but that also felt like it resonated with what everyone was feeling. And I think that's what's important is that you're making things for the benefit of other people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Let's get into the, the nitty gritty of YouTube for a little bit. A lot of entrepreneurs, I think, hear the messaging oh, YouTube is a great way to reach people. Yeah. Mm. And it's also, you know, it is a great platform to be able to showcase what you do. You know, it's, it's obviously free and mm -hmm. there are a lot of benefits from an SEO standpoint and mm -hmm. we could go on and on and on about that. So a lot of people are asking me now as they're moving from their brand into media content creation, whether it's audio or video, What's the tech stack? What do I need to get started doing this? What do you use? Yeah, so I shoot on a, a Sony camera. It's an A7S Mark II. It's a little bit of an older model. Um, but it's definitely a little bit beyond like the traditional point and shoot. Like there's a learning curve to it. And so I'm lucky enough that my husband, he shoots the videos, he's behind the camera and he's very, very proficient in using cameras like that. And that's how you get the quality. I think, you know, if you went back five years ago, I think probably all you needed was a point-and-shoot camera. But now the expectation is for a bit more quality, just as YouTube has gotten better. What's lovely is that I really do truly believe that phone cameras have adapted. So I think that if all you have is a recently updated phone, it'll probably do the job. And then all you're really worrying about is making sure you're in good light or by a window uh, making sure the camera's steady and then, you know, you're free to record. And another tip I would give to anybody creating content, whether it's for YouTube or another form of social media, is work with some urgency. Mm. When you're editing, There's there's got to be a, a rhythm to these videos because people don't uh, have patience on social media. They want to watch things and they want to watch things with efficiency and they want to watch things that are very quick. And so over you know, your gear being really, really high end, I would urge you to make a shorter, more efficient, kind of more snackable sized piece of content uh, that viewers actually want to get through. Because it can be beautiful, but if it's too long, you're going to lose people way, way faster than if, you know, the audio is bad or the video is not as great. Yeah, I think people do get a little bit caught up in the tech of it. It, that's something that really can keep us in a state of inaction because we're so mm -hmm. worried that, oh, what if we don't have the exact microphone or the exact camera that we need, then no one will watch it. But I've seen really high-end content tank <laughs> because yep. it didn't have that emotional content that you were talking about. I've got a friend of mine who's starting a YouTube channel right now and he's going, you know, he's going through all the steps that I kind of watched myself go through and now I'm trying to guide him along. But he really keeps getting hung up on this gear thing. And 
I have to remind him and his shoots take way too long. That's the other issue is like, if you can't maintain these videos on a weekly basis, if you're never going to have longevity in this career because it's just going to feel painful to get this work done, whereas it has to be streamlined and efficient. And so I like to remind him like the story is the most important, whatever you are trying to say, whatever mood you're trying to evoke, whatever the jokes are, like those have to be prime. They are the king of the video. Everything after that, that's just extra. If the camera's beautiful, awesome, great. That's going to be nice. But if the script is bad, your jokes are bad, or the uh, throwaway concept that didn't need to be made, the video's not going to do well. For many entrepreneurs looking to social media, we often get stuck in inaction because of the intimidation of learning a new skill buying expensive tech or investing more time. Like seriously, don't even talk to me about Twitter fleets. I just barely figured out how to do a proper Twitter thread. And now y'all want me to spend even more time on Twitter and TikTok? Don't even get me started on TikTok. It makes my head hurt. If you find yourself making excuses for getting started in the content creation process, Julie tells you to just start small with a good quality phone camera and just be yourself. And if that's too overwhelming, maybe you should just hire a pro like Julie to make the content for you. You mentioned your experience with Tastemade, but can you Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about how the process differs when you're collaborating with a brand and making content under their banner? Yeah, it can be uh, challenging, but also, you know, exciting. It's kind of exciting to speak and create content in a different voice Uh, when you're working with a brand. There's obviously less creative control on your end. It becomes a lot more collaborative and you have to be prepared for the brand to be really analytic focused. And that's something that I, you know, was a little bit discouraged by as kind of an artistic thinker, but the brand wants to hit their analytics. They've got numbers that they need to make by the end of the year. And so, they're going to be worried about that. And you kind of have to move within their guidelines. And so I found it difficult, but also a little bit exciting because, you know, these are new boundaries that you can flex within and try to create new and creative original things while also working within their restrictions, if that makes sense. That absolutely makes sense. Now, what about when it's reversed? When you have your content and your brand, it's on your YouTube channel and a Mm -hmm. brand comes to you and says... Like I've seen some of your videos in podcast speak have a pre-roll, post-roll ad that is not necessarily integrated within the content. But what do you, how do you determine if a brand is appropriate for your audience and the content that you're creating? Oh, that's a good question. Um, It usually has to be a brand that I use myself or if I don't use it, I have to like it. It just would feel so scuzzy if I wasn't into what I was selling. The other rule that I use for branded content on my channel is I have to have full creative control. So I'll say, like, let me know the talking points that you'd like me to get across, but you don't get to touch the video. That's mine. And you don't get a say on how I'm going to deliver these because one of the things I like to do is deliver them in character. And usually those characters are a little bit quirky. But yeah, so in terms of choosing the brand, it's it's more about uh, brands that I feel like supporting and that also that I feel like my audience would be into, you know, because the worst thing to do would be to try to sell them something that I know they're just not interested in. It's every, a waste of everybody's time. 
And do most of the time, do most of those brands come to you or do you ever go out and pitch brands for collaborations? I've never pitched brands before. There's a a really good company that I've been working with recently that's this third-party company called Space Station. And they basically serve as a a liaison between brands and creators. And I found them through a fellow YouTuber, a friend of mine who recommended them. But they do a really good job at curating brands for your channel. So there are certain brands that I see that maybe friends of mine don't necessarily because we make different types of content. But they also really, really respect the creator's vision. So I've never had to push back and say, oh no, I want full creative control. They've just known from the beginning that it's to the benefit of everybody if I have creative control because the audience is going to like that more and the brand is going to have more people stop on their site and it's going to be, you know, better all around for everyone. So I'm curious for our entrepreneurs who are listening who have brands that they could see as being benefited through partnerships and collaborations and sponsorships with influencers. What would you say that influencers or content creators like you look for in a sponsor? Like how should they approach you when they, you or someone like you (laughs) don't don't everybody like start specifically Julie. No, that's okay. Feel free. But but like you said, you only work with brands that really feel like a good fit for you. Yeah. What would they need to say? Do they need to send you product? Do they slide in the DMs? What's the process? And what do you look for? Um, uh, yeah, I look for a few things. I mean, if it is a, a product-based item over being, you know, like a online courses or something, I like to use it. I won't talk about something that I haven't used. Um, and, you know, and there are some brands that'll send me stuff and turns out it wasn't my thing. And I kind of feel bad, but I also hope they recognize that I'm really, really just trying to be truthful and authentic to what I do. The biggest thing that I look for in a brand or that I want is a a mutual understanding that I respect the brand and I want it to be a successful partnership because it looks bad on me if it isn't. So the authenticity that I'm going to bring to it means that I'm going to need to be able to talk about it in my own way. So in order to relay this as best I can to my audience, I'm going to need a certain amount of creative control. Again, I'll work with the talking points that you'd like me to use, but I know my audience best. And I think the brands that I've had really, really successful partnerships with have acknowledged that and just said, hey, Julie, you do what you do. If you like this product, use it, talk about it. And, um, and, and those have been the ones that, you know, I think resonate the best with my audience. And how do they get to you? Like literally logistically, do most influencers have agencies that, that you should go through? How does it work? Yeah. So most influencers or YouTubers usually have uh, an email uh, on their profile. I use my manager's email. That's the first one to get in touch with. And she's the one who's going to, you know, work through, okay, this is, these are the rates. This is the expectation. This is kind of what we expect in a contract and whatnot. She's really used to that by now. The other type of brand partnership I get is through that space station company. So they'll have connections with different brands. Um, And they, again, they work as a liaison. They have an entire roster of YouTube creators that are a little bit larger. Um, And so they're a good way to get kind of the more uh, larger channels on board with a brand is by working through one of those kind of third-party agencies. Influencer marketing is tricky. 
it's not a one-size-fits-all option, and ROI is difficult to measure. Plus, different influencers manage their partnerships differently. So do your research before you jump in. Personally, I find the best brands to work with are ones that A, take the time to understand my own brand and platform, B, are very clear about their brand identity and goals, and C, care about quality content. On the flip side, if you're an influencer looking for brand partnerships, you need to demonstrate that you understand their brand and your audience cares about their product. And just remember, building your brand and platform takes a heck of a lot more hustle than you think it will. With the theme of your viral video where you were going back in time talking to your early pre-pandemic self, if you could go back in time and talk to the Julie of six years ago, what would you tell her? Six years ago, Julie, oh, that naive little muffin. Um, (laughs) I mean, I wouldn't have done anything differently because I think it was really, really important for me to grind for so long. I think in me, it changed what it meant to go viral. It wasn't a oh, this is my big break. And oh my gosh, what am I going to do if these views disappear and never come back? Because I've already been at the bottom, you know? So instead going viral was just like, oh great, you know, finally that one took off. Awesome. I'm going to just keep doing what I was doing because that's what I do. That's my style. So I don't think I would change anything. What I would probably tell myself is just, it's going to happen eventually. You know, Every work, every evening I worked, every weekend, every time I hustled when I wasn't getting views on my channel, those are all drops in the bucket. And you don't know what drop is going to be the thing that makes it overflow and hit that, you know, success marker that you've made for yourself. But you just have to keep putting drops in that bucket. And that's what I would try to remind myself is that don't stress so much about making it happen now. And instead, focus on the hustle, focus on getting good, focus on making things that you're proud of. And then eventually, whatever that success is for you, it'll find its way to you over time. Mm -hmm. Yes, you have to have that persistence, certainly. And you said there were definitely big swings and big failures. Was there ever a moment when you were just like, I'm on, on the brink of of quitting all of this. It's a lot to keep up weekly content for that long. Oh my gosh. When you're not necessarily seeing the return. There's been several times where I've been like, man, do I just, do I just get in the car and pack my things and move somewhere and pretend I'm a different person, (laughs) you know, start fresh. I think there were times where I questioned whether or not persisting on YouTube was a good use of my time because it did feel a little like, what am I, I'm wasting money on this. I'm bartending. I'm barely paying my rent. Like, what do I think this is ever going to be? But I kept coming back to the fact that, well, this is my practicing ground. And like any other career, uh, you know, like any other master who wants to be good at something, they have to practice. And if uh, what it means is that I have to spend money and get better gear and keep practicing my art form then this is the cost of doing business. And so I I never uh, stopped dreaming of being an actor and a writer. I just wondered if I was going on the right path or not. And ultimately, I did decide that YouTube was going to be my, you know, my weekly class. And and that must have been a scary decision as you're you're working in 
your executive assistant job that's paying the Mm -hmm. bills, that Mm -hmm. you have that security, and then you decide you're going to go all in on being a content creator. Can you talk to me about that decision point and how you weighed the pros and cons of finally being able to make that leap? Yeah, it was a really scary decision for sure. It it definitely takes a lot of bravery to leave your Joe job to pursue art or creation full time. I was lucky enough because I I hit a crossroads where I was making money on YouTube and of course creating original content for Tastemade enough that it could almost supplement all of my income. So while I still had my job, so I kind of had two jobs at one point and I would work in the evenings and on weekends. And so it was right around the end of the year, one year, and my husband and I spoke about it and we realized that I was making just enough money on YouTube that if I had all of that free time that I was spending it at my executive assistant job, I mean, I could get lots more jobs, you know, I, I could make other content. Maybe I add in an extra YouTube video. So the the fork in the road, it wasn't quite as dangerous a decision as it sounds. I wasn't going from something to nothing. I, I did have a bit of a, a job that I was moving into, but yeah, it was scary. I, and I think it was more scary probably for my family and my parents because, of course, they don't live in Toronto and I don't get to see them very often. So to hear that I was leaving my job and doing this YouTube thing, that that was not consistent. Yeah. Yeah. They were, they've admitted years later too. My mom was like, I didn't think it was a good idea. I didn't think you, but I couldn't say it at the time because then you'd for sure do it. So, ah, yes, that's, (laughs) that's how they program us. Like, well, I'll show you. Yeah. (laughs) Now we've given everyone all the info they need to either start a channel (laughs) or work with an influencer or work with you and sponsor your content. So, the way that we close out all of our interviews is by asking for some advice. What is the last or best piece of advice that you either gave or received? The harder you work, the luckier you get. And I'm a very, very firm believer in that. And that's something I I hold dear to my heart. I still make sure I sleep and I make sure I take vacations, but I work really, really hard. And, um, You know, it's taken many, many years to pay off and there's still years to go before I achieve my ultimate dreams. But um, yeah, the harder you work, the luckier you get. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably a hustler like Julie. You don't wait for an opportunity to be given to you. You create it yourself. Here are some other takeaways from Julie. Don't be afraid to try new things, even if it's a flop. The internet moves fast and you could always take a video down just start small in all aspects of life, but especially in social media. Don't get bogged down with tech or daunted by trying something new. Be consistent and be patient. Rome wasn't built in a day and neither was a YouTube subscriber base. I think we could all use a laugh right now. And I know you can get them watching Julie Nolke on her YouTube channel. This podcast was brought to you by FreshBooks, the number one cloud accounting solution for small business owners and their teams. Whether you're a content creator, solopreneur, or a small business owner, we have so many tools to help you manage your finances so you can go ahead and knock accounting off that long task list. Check out the exclusive offer that's just for our podcast listeners like you. It's at freshbooks.com slash I-M-A-L. Again, that's freshbooks.com slash I-M-A-L short for I Make a Living. 
Our audio engineer and composer is James Morris. Our associate producer is Leo Shelvianueva. And our producer and director is Paco Erzmendi. I'm your host and producer, Demona Hoffman. I'd love to connect with you. Maybe make some content together. Maybe start a Twitter thread. Maybe do some Twitter fleets. You can find me on all of the socials at Demona Hoffman or at DemonaHoffman.com. And don't be afraid to press record because it's your business. See you next week. 